0: It's a Mailbag Monday. We've got your questions, including which Baltimore Orioles infielders might get traded this offseason. Let's talk about it. You are locked on MLB prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked on MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsay Crosby, award winning baseball writer and podcaster, and thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're probably part of the Locked on Podcast Network where it's your team every day. And today's episode is made possible by our friends at FanDuel. Make every moment more right now. New customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150. Bucks if your team wins, visit Fando.com slash LockedOn to get started. So as we do every single Monday, we are giving the people what they want. This is a Monday mailbag. If you have questions for the show, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Show's on Twitter at Locked On Farm. We have a link tree in the episode description in the show notes. It has everything else, whether it's Discord, whether it's subtext, whether it's YouTube, email, whatever it might be. One of the big questions, multiple different people have submitted versions of this, is what infielders are tradable or could be gotten in a trade from the Baltimore Orioles? I think some of this comes back to it is not a good free agent class when it comes to position players, especially on the left side of the infield. And I'll get to that in a second. But looking at the infielders, you can I'm going to group them into three groups and I'm going to take first base out because most of the guys who have been playing first base have been you know, some of the more veteran players or like a Heston Kirstall or whatever. But I'm going to put them into three different groups. There are a couple of those prospects at first base for the Orioles that are untouchable. Gunnar Henderson is not getting moved. Jackson Holiday is not getting, it's not happening. I'm not, I don't want Orioles fans to get all angry at this when they see this and they're like, yeah, it's not happening. They're not trading Gunnar Henderson. They're not trading Jackson Holiday. There are different levels of availability for, or should be, for every other infielder outside of those two, right? Two guys that I think are definitely available, Jorge Mateo and Ramon Urias. If you look at their situations, they're in arbitration. They're both going to make two plus million dollars, and they... And they both had their struggles at times last year. So Urias, 264, 332, 372 in 119 games. And granted, he spent a little bit of time in the minors. This is the combined slash line for the whole season. But not necessarily where you expected him to be. Jorge Materio started off incredibly hot. Finished with a 226, 275, 353 slash line. 32 stolen bases, but just struggled at the plate after that first month of the season. I really thought I had found an incredibly cheap shortstop off the waiver wire in redraft and had to get had to yeet him into the sun rather quickly because he just fell back to earth. But both of those guys making multiple millions of dollars in arbitration for a organization that does not necessarily like to pay players and has not really gone out of pocket too much. We've talked about this before. I think they have one or two contract commitments like free agent, long-term commitments for 2024. And one of them is being partially paid by the Mets. So those two guys, I imagine, are definitely available. And then everybody else is going to be, make me a deal. And when you're looking at those two guys being available, I think part of this is, like I mentioned earlier, this is a very bad left side of the infield class in free agency. When you look at the guys that are available, shortstop is... Your best one is Ahmed Rosario, right? Ahmed Rosario, 28 years old. He had, what, like three war last year, but he didn't hit very well at all. Kind of struggled defensively at times. After that, you've got Tim Anderson, who was lucky to hit one home run. They declined that that club option because way too much money for what they got out of him. And then it's, what, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa? I know he's the greatest player of all time. He's one of the only players to both strike I get like three strikeouts and hit a home run in the same game but that's your shortstop class and then third base isn't that great either yes matt chapman is there matt chapman had a very had a good year is a good player but after that Imer Condelario is an option at third base he had the weakest arm of anybody who played third base last year. Josh Donaldson had the weakest bat of anybody who played third base last year. Gio Urcello was hurt missed most of the year and It's not a very good shortstop or third base class. And if there's a team that thinks they can fix Jorge Mateo, he's probably going to be desired in free agency. Uh, Ramon Urias, if there's a a team who thinks that they can either work around his lack of power or they just just need the competence on the field, there's going to be a market for both of those guys. And then the other four are... Let's make a deal, right? Kobe Mayo, Joey Ortiz, Connor Norby, Jordan Westberg. Those are all, let's make a deal. Let's figure out what we can do. And I think the biggest question mark of those guys ends up being Kobe Mayo. Uh, and we got a question about specifically about Kobe Mayo and what position does he play and is he going to get traded or not? And I think that's the biggest one Baltimore has to figure out. It feels like you're... Like If at all possible, you want to keep Gunnar Henderson at shortstop. He can play third base. He can play a good third base, but it feels like... It's just like the Bobby Witt conversation again, right? Like He could be a really good third baseman, but he could be special at shortstop. And defensively, if he can stay there, which I think he can, and I think, honestly, I think he's probably better at short than Jackson Holliday is, then uh, it, it gives you an option for do you install a guy like Kobe Mayo at third base or... Do you trade him since you have a bad third base class uh, and a bad shortstop class? But a bad third base class, do you trade Kobe Mayo before it becomes obvious that Kobe Mayo is not a third baseman? I say that. So last year, he played 28 games at first. he He started 100 games at third between AA and AAA. His fielding percentage... Chris Mayo at third base was 919, combined between AA Bowie and AAA Norfolk. Now, it got better in AAA versus AA. It was a 914 in Bowie. It was uh, 12 errors in 63 games, so 914. And it got better in Norfolk, eight errors in 39 games, a 925. And there have been players who came to the Bigs and got better on defense at third base. Josh Young is the biggest example of that. I have talked multiple times now about how we, I feel like we were wrong on the defense. And it feels like a lot of times that's the hardest thing for some of us to figure out. And by us, I mean the prospect apparatus is how good a guy is going to be at defense, especially a position like third base. And part of that, I think, is because so much of the prospect evaluation is driven by fantasy. And on fantasy, You don't necessarily care about the quality of the defense as long as you establish are they going to be able to play that spot in the majors or not. You don't see a lot of defensive replacements at third base, right? Uh, It's either is the guy good enough to play there or does he move to first? And I think because of that, there's a little bit of a gap in evaluation of these players in the defense. I think that you still see Kobe Mayo offensively struggle with some sliders and cutters, things like that. You've got some defensive questions. I don't think he opens next year as the starting third baseman in Baltimore. I think Jackson Holiday probably doesn't open as the starting second baseman in Baltimore. I think they, they keep him down a little bit to give him more reps at second base, but also probably for a service time thing. And you've got the ability to make some of these trades, the big question you have to decide, though, again, is what is Kobe Mayo's position? Are we going to try to make him work as a third baseman? The arm is good enough. I don't think everything else is. I don't think the range, the reactions are good enough to be a starting third baseman. But do we sell him as a third baseman now or do we let him work on his defense and try to install him as the major league third baseman? I think once you figure that out, then you know which of these infielders can be traded and who you have to keep. Because if you trade Mayo and you're keeping Gunnar Henderson at short, Ramon Urias is probably your starting third baseman, unless it's somebody like a Jordan Wesper. Like there's options, but it all comes down to what do you do at third base? Do you do Gunnar at third, Jackson Holiday at short eventually? Do you do Kobe Mayo at third, Gunnar at short? Like you, once you figure that out, you can figure everything else out. In just a minute, we're gonna talk about speaking of third base, we're gonna talk about Brock Wilkin of the of the Milwaukee Brewers. We'll get to that next, right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. You can score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's a hundred and fifty bucks. If your team wins. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. It's an incredibly easy to use app. Uh, Payouts are super simple, and they have a ton of different betting options. Spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So, visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to kick off the NFL season with FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. Okay, so looking at... More questions out of the mailbag. I got a question about Brock Wilkin of the Milwaukee Brewers. Do we see him in Milwaukee next year? And I think initially I'm going to say no. Reminder of who he is: first round pick this year, number 18 overall, out of Wake Forest. He went all the way to the College World Series with them. Looked really good, and he made it up to Double A for the final week of the season. Boluxi was battling Montgomery for that final playoff spot in the, one of the divisions of the Southern League, did not get it. So he got six games there. So overall slash line for Brock Wilkin after being drafted 47 games between rookie ball, high A, and double A. And 34 of those 47 were in high A, Wisconsin. So that's the majority of this year. But in those 47 games 285, 414, 473, five home runs. 17 extra base hits, including four triples, 33 walks to 47 strikeouts, and four of four on stolen bases. Couple th- thoughts, good and bad, on the sl- on the stats, as well as what Milwaukee has said about this. Good 16% walk rate. 16.3% walk rate is very good, especially for a guy that up until his final season at Wake Forest had struggled with on base. His on-base in 2020, his sophomore year at Wake Forest was a 362, and that was coming off of a 365 in his freshman year. So he didn't get really didn't get any better statistically in that category, and he struck out a lot more. But at Wake Forest in his draft year, six, a, a really nice number: 69 walks to 58 strikeouts on base of 506. The full. Again, college slash lines are nuts. The full slash line is 345, 506, 807. It's a 13, 13 OPS. He hit a school record 31 home runs. Again, college slash lines get nuts sometimes. But one of the big changes, big improvements we saw in 2023 in the college season was Brock Wilkin was a lot less inclined to swing and miss at sliders. He's got a, he got much better at not chasing sliders off the plate. That contributed to not all of it, but some to the walk numbers being better and the strikeouts not being as bad. He struck out 58 times in 66 games compared to 71 strikeouts in 60 games his sophomore year, and this is with facing some really good teams in Omaha at the College World Series. So. You like that. He also had a 23% strikeout rate in his major league or in his professional baseball sample. And again, a lot of that was in high A, Wisconsin at age 21. And so I don't necessarily know if, from a pitch recognition standpoint, he's ready for major league pitching. And right after he got drafted, Somebody in the Milwaukee front office said he's a 2025 player for us. And there's precedent for Milwaukee getting guys to the majors within two years. Garrett Mitchell was drafted out of UCLA, debuted in 2022, two years later. Sal Frelick, drafted in 21, out of Boston College, debuted two years later in 2023. There's precedent for them getting guys on an accelerated basis to the majors It's just not necessarily, I think one year is probably a bit optimistic because of the swing and miss issues we've seen in the past with Brock Wilkin. We don't want that to continue and we don't want, we want to see how he adjusts. Now, defensively, I think he's fine. I think he actually surprised us a little bit with how decent he looked on defense. Again, third base defense, I feel like sometimes it's kind of lost to a lot of it's maybe a blind spot to a lot of prospect folks. And there's a related question I got in the mailbag about that I'm going to use to tie back to Brock Wilkin uh, back to it. And it was about how exit velo has become uh, such a prominent statistic. And is that skewing scouting? And I think what that is, instead of skewing scouting, I think that is us better understanding a lot of the inputs that go into performance versus just looking at the stat line. And then two, having better access to a lot of this data from prospects. And not just minor league prospects, but draftable prospects. College, especially. Brock Wilkin, a guy at Wake Forest, they are very good with data, not only for pitchers. They have the Wake Forest Pitching Lab we've talked about ad nauseum on the show, but also at having man, having the marketless biomechanics, being able to get teams detailed information. And so as you've been able to get better information from colleges and as more of the top high school prospects have been going to showcases that one of the selling points of these showcases is the data that they're able to collect and perfect game, you can go to a player's perfect game page if you have a paid subscription and you can see exit velocities. You can see pitch movement. You can see all kinds of amazingly detailed data from these players. Now, I don't necessarily think it's always a great thing. I think there's a an issue, and this is baseball as a whole, not just amongst draftable players or just prospects or whatever, but there's certain things that maybe are focused on too much. I think we have too, a, a big focus on velocity from a pitcher, maybe to a detriment. I do think there is sometimes you have those players that have very good location and sequencing, things like that that sometimes get squeezed out because maybe they're not throwing 95, they're throwing 89 or 90, whereas if they had the right sort of attention, they might be able to develop some of that velocity, get to a 92 or so, and make themselves into a a potential big leaguer that kind of gets squeezed out now because they're throwing mid to upper 80s. Uh, And then obviously the injury concerns with pitchers and things like that. But I do think that some of the reason we see... uh, players progress through the minors quicker is because we have better data. I do think also recently we have a better quality of players entering the minor leagues simply because more information, better development, things like that. And because you have less levels of the minors, you are incentivized to promote prospects quicker to get them to a level that is a true challenge for them. We saw a lot of players, it feels like, coming out of the draft, hit A this year. And it was because teams were aggressively moving them through, trying to find the proper level that they needed to be at. Wyatt Langford had 26, I think it was like 26, played appearances in AAA this year, because he was just raking at every other level. And so teams understand this is information that is transferable to the next level. This is in. This is statistically significant inputs versus this is not. This is noise or whatever. So teams understand data better, and because of that, they're better able to isolate the stats that do and don't matter and promote players aggressively. Move players to levels where they're going to be adequately challenged. In just a minute, I had a question about is the luxury tax bad? And is the quality of the top 100 a little bit poor? And we'll talk about that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. Welcome back in to Locked on MLB Prospects on a Mailbag Monday. Reminder, if you have questions for the show, if you have show ideas, segment ideas, anything like that, want to hear from you, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Everything else is in the link tree in the episode description in the show notes. We have a Discord, we have a... We have email, we have YouTube comments, tons of places to leave them for us. Some more of the questions that I got, is the luxury tax bad for fans? And the argument that was being made in that question was the World Series didn't have uh, top teams from record in the regular season and the stars that come along with that. And is the luxury tax devaluing the product? And I think a bigger argument more so than the luxury tax being like being hurtful is the lack of a salary floor hurting the product. So I will agree that the luxury tax serves as a de facto cap for a lot of teams. They will not cross the luxury tax. They will do, and when they do, you will see them get rid of players in subsequent seasons to reset their tax obligations. The Boston Red Sox are a great example of this. It was argued that the reason they had to, they, they, they traded Mookie Betts was because signing him to a long term deal would have put him, would have put them over into the luxury tax going forward. Him and Xander Bogarts had to leave the team to go get paid somewhere else so that they could continue to have the rest of the roster around them. Now, whether you buy that or not is a whole different conversation. But I will agree that there are teams that treat the luxury tax as a de facto cap even though there are teams that will pass it. And it feels like there are more teams that are willing to exceed it now to be competitive. The Braves are a team that went over the tax last year. And I don't remember many times in the past when they've done that. The flip side is you have too many teams that are willing to collect revenue-sharing money. And because there's not a mechanism that requires you to spend revenue-sharing money on salaries, on player salaries, because of that, You have too many teams that don't spend to the level that they could be spending and be more competitive in the industry. Uh, Now, and just to clarify, there is a mechanism in the CBA that requires revenue sharing money to be spent on improving the major league product. But the definition of that, as always, there will be lawyers. The definition of that is up for debate. And you'll see some teams that use revenue sharing money to... Pay their minor leaguers to fund benefits, to pay for player development personnel, and all these other things that are not paying for salaries on the field. And so, if you were to redo the entire economic system of Major League Baseball, I think one of the things you would do would be like every other league has, it feels, and you would institute a hard cap and a hard floor. And the inability to get a meaningful floor. At the same time as having what functions as a cap for some of the teams in baseball is a failure of the Players Association to find a mechanism, to negotiate a mechanism to force the owners to actively try to win. Too many Major League teams do not actively try to win. And that, to me, is the biggest issue in Major League Baseball. I'm not saying it's the only issue. Uh, The antitrust thing is not great. But it is the biggest issue is that not every major league team tries to win. They do not spend money to try to win. Baltimore is a great example of this. Baltimore fans are going to hate me, but their owner has talked about, he was asked about doing long-term extensions for some of these young players like an Adley Rutschman, like a Gunnar Henderson. And he's already talked about with five years of control of these players left. He's already talked about if we are to give them contract extensions, we have to raise ticket prices and charge you more to pay for that. And I don't believe that's true. I've seen the financials of the Atlanta Braves. Like, it's public, believe it or not. You can go see how much money they made off of baseball operations. And being good at baseball is good for business. And I refuse to believe that the Baltimore Orioles can't afford to pay a free agent because of the revenue that they are or are not making. So, enough of that. Question about uh, talent level in the top 100 being lacking compared to previous years. I going in and looking at the top 100. There, one. I guess a, a few thoughts here. One, there's a big difference in number two and number 15. That's a bigger jump than like 15 to 35 or 15 to 50 or whatever. But I will agree that a lot of that middle, that fit, that 20 to 50 or so in this year's top 100 feels like there's a lot more question marks and or distance from the bigs than previous years. So like, and I'm looking at Baseball America's top 100 right now. A lot of the top 100s are very similar and will be pipeline, things like that. But like Carson Williams, number 22, amazing defender for the Tampa Bay Rays. There are legitimate questions about, is he going to be able to hit enough to stick as a major leaguer? And For a top 25 prospect, I feel like we don't typically have that kind of question, right? That's a significant question for a top 25 prospect to have. Andrew, Speaking of top 25, Andrew Painter at number 25 looked like the best pitching prospect in baseball. He was also coming off of Tommy John surgery to still be that high with such huge questions. He's going to miss all of 2024 as well. I know you don't want to punish a guy for getting hurt, but it feels like he's a much bigger question mark than most players in a top 25 of a top 100 list would be. Tyler Soderstrom at 28 for the Oakland A's did not look very good at all in his major league call-up, and there are significant questions whether or not he can hit enough at the major league level. When's the last time you saw questions that significant about a top 30 prospect? Or you have guys that have a, Good, healthy distance from the bigs. Noah Schultz at 31, the lefty out of uh, lefty pitcher for the White Sox. Quite a ways to go to make it to the bigs. Ricky Tiedemann at 33. Significant questions, which he's answered some in Arizona, but significant questions about can he pitch deep enough in games to be a viable starter? Dylan Lesko at 36 of the Padres, coming off of Tommy John surgery, didn't start pitching until the fall. In the Arizona Complex League, significant questions for a guy and significant far, far away. He was a prep pitcher in 22 Uh, for a top 36 prospect, Shane Boz at 38 coming off of Tommy John. We've seen him in the bigs. At least we have major league experience here, but coming off of Tommy John in the top 40 number 40, Chase Dollander did not look the same in 2023 as he did in previous seasons. And then went to an organization that has historically not been known for being able to develop pitchers. There's a big question about whether or not Chase Dollander is ever going to get back that 2022 form that looked like he was going to be the top college pitcher in the 23 draft. He's your number 40 prospect. We could keep on going. Dalton rushing at 44. Questions about the defense. Chase Hampton at 49. for the Pitcher for the Yankees. Popped up really quickly questions about how effective he's going to be when he gets to age-to-level-appropriate appropriate, or age to level appropriate competition. It just, it feels like we haven't had this many significant questions about that 20 to 50 range in the top 100 in quite a while. And I think part of that is this stuff is cyclical, right? You're, what you're seeing right here is you're seeing the impact of a shortened five-round draft in 2020 where a lot of the slam dunk guys were... Uh, were drafted and have already debuted. And the guys who weren't drafted, who went to college, they were just drafted this year. And this range, this 25 to 50 range, this would normally be full of those guys that were drafted in 2020 in the sixth round, in the seventh round, who had played themselves, or guys who were drafted, you know, first or second round that went to college instead. Uh, That would be getting ready to debut in the major leagues and you'd have some questions about them, but not the massive questions about, can this guy hit enough to be a major leaguer? Can this pitcher come back from injury? But you have a smaller pool of guys who can be top 100 prospects because of the natural lull right here because of that shortened draft. You introduced so many fewer prospects into major league baseball that year this is the natural time frame where those guys would be popping up in the top 100 lists outside of the obvious ones like a Spencer Strider who already debuted. It's, a, it's an interesting top 50. I think as you get halfway through the season next year, we'll see significant changes to this top 50. I expect a lot, of the, like, a lot of movement in this and probably won't look as bad in retrospect, but right now I can totally see how you'd have questions about that mid-range of that top 50 prospects. Fantastic week coming up this week. We're going to be following MLB free agency as well. And as big signings and stories happen that affect prospects, we'll make sure we talk about it on here in the meantime. Again, questions for the show. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. A million other ways to reach us are all in the episode description. They're all in the show notes. Until tomorrow's show, remember, it's always a great time to pay a minor leaguer.